Thanks for downloading this podcast from Burghead Free Church in Murray, Scotland. We exist to know Jesus and make Jesus known. Our vision is to grow to be a vibrant all-age church of 100 disciples. Find out more at burgheadfreechurch.org. Most of you will know that my wife Morag is a doctor. Uh, When we were first married, uh, we would both come home from work in the evening and we'd sit down to eat our evening meal together and we'd ask the the typical question that newly marrieds do, uh, how was your day, darling? And we look just like that, of course. Now you need to know that I don't really like hospitals, needles, blood or guts. Uh, In fact, the last time uh, somebody tried to take blood from me, I threw up on them. And unfortunately, when I first got married to Morag, she was spending her days doing knee surgery. Uh, So when I asked, how was your day, darling? I found it pretty hard to cope with the detailed answers that I got, especially over my spaghetti bolognese. I would never make a good doctor, but there are a few things I have picked up along the way. When a doctor tries to work out what is wrong with you, They will look at your symptoms to try and diagnose the deeper underlying condition. Uh, So fellas, we all know that when we have a cough, a runny nose, and a crushing sense that we will probably die before the day is out, we all know we have got the dreaded man flu. Anyway, as we continue to study Romans, possibly the most influential letter ever written, we're going to see something similar, a diagnosis. This is God's diagnosis. It's not of some isolated physical illness. It's not even of a a global pandemic. Actually, it is more serious even than that. The question being answered in today's passage is, what has gone wrong with the whole world. There might be different opinions, but nobody could deny there was a problem. The symptoms are all around us. We live in a world surrounded by greed. We live in a world of senseless, ruthless violence. And we live in a world of perversion. At this stage, let me give you a heads up on the big picture here in Romans. Remember that Paul is explaining the gospel, that is the good news. But the first thing we must do in order to understand and appreciate the good news is understand the bad news. The very serious problem we all have. Now, let me give you a spoiler alert at this stage. Let me give you an idea of where Paul's argument is driving towards. For this whole section, over the next couple of weeks, Paul, the author, is driving with a kind of relentless logic towards the first major conclusion of the letter. Chapter 3, verse 19, he wants us to get to the stage where we understand that every mouth will be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. He wants us to understand that no one will be declared righteous, that is right with God, in God's sight, 
by works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. If I can summarize that as plainly and bluntly as I can, Paul is going to argue that every one of us is wicked, that none of us has kept God's law, more than that, that, that God's law only serves to highlight our sin all the more, and finally that we will all stand silent and without excuse before God. In other words, there's nothing that we can do or say to change this. There's no argument we can make. We cannot plead our cause or make a defense. Each one of us, me included, stands guilty before God with no hope in and of ourselves of appeal or acquittal. Now, you may or may not yet agree with God's diagnosis, but we all know there are problems in the world. And so the question becomes, what is the cause of these problems? Why are we like this? And doesn't it make you sad to live in a world where things like this happen? In fact, more than that, doesn't it make you angry? Anger, that's where we begin. Look at verse 18. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men. There is a problem. God's beautiful world is a mess and God is rightly angry. There's just three things I want to do just now for the rest of this talk. Firstly, I want to quite straightforwardly tell you what this passage is saying, the message Secondly, I want to show you from the text how I got there, the evidence. And thirdly, we'll begin to see, therefore, what our deeper problem is. The message, the evidence, and the problem. So, number one, here's the message. Here is God's diagnosis of what is wrong with our world. Let's go step by step. Paul is saying that God is angry... Because even though we instinctively know he's real, we wickedly choose to ignore him. And to make it worse, we end up worshipping other stuff instead. When we choose to reject God, the frightening thing is that God gives us exactly what we want. He gives us over to a life without him. And because God is the source of all goodness and life, a life without him is awful. It is a declining spiral of ruthless greed and arrogant pride. That is the, the sober message of this passage before us today. So let me show you from the text why that is the message. So number two, here's the evidence that, that that is the case. Think first, though, about this question. When someone offers you the choice, do you typically want the good news or the bad news first? I say that because it's, it's tempting to think here that Paul is laying out the bad news, driving again towards that conclusion in chapter 3, verse 19, before he shows us the good news of the gospel, setting out the stark problem before giving us the solution. 
know, giving us the, the true darkness of our hearts before showing us the light of Jesus. And in some ways that's true. But in all of this, don't forget where we were last week. Paul has already told us that there is a gospel. That there is good news. That the righteousness of God has been revealed. God's right way for you and I to be right with him. And if you're a Christian listening today, then you already know that hope. But if you're going to understand and appreciate the beauty of that hope in the gospel, we do need first to see the darkness of ourselves and of our world. So for now, let's get back to the stark reality. Again, verse 18, the wrath of God is being revealed against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. God is angry, do you see, with our godlessness. In other words, there's a part of each one of us that would be secretly very pleased if there was no God. At the end of the day, if there was no one up there telling us how to live and saying what was right and wrong, well, who would get to make those kinds of decisions? I guess we would. We love the idea of being in charge and setting the agenda. We love the idea of being able to do whatever we like without God. That is our godlessness. In other words, we push God away and out of our lives and instead install ourselves on the throne of the universe. And God is rightly angry. A word about God's wrath, though. God's anger is not like ours. God doesn't do out-of-control, ill-tempered outbursts. Some of us have seen that kind of anger in ourselves or in our friends or family, and we know it's not pretty. No, God's anger is his settled, controlled hostility to everything that is evil. God is not angry in spite of being good. He's angry with wickedness because he is good. The wrath of God is being revealed against the godlessness and wickedness of men. That's God's wrath. But also, he goes on, who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them. You see, Paul is saying we like the idea, deep down, of there being no God, but God has made it plain that he is there, so if we can't actually get rid of him, I suppose our next best option is to pretend he's not there, to suppress the inconvenient truth. And can I say, doing this is so innate to us, we don't even realise we're doing it. Now you might say, well, hang on a minute, that's not fair. He's saying the truth of God is plain, but, but how can I know that there's a God? I'm not sure. Paul's answer is, deep down, you do know there is a God. You know that there is a creator, not least of all because of the creation. Look at verse 20. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, 
His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. It's funny, isn't it? God's invisible qualities can be clearly seen, of course, from what has been made. So the 23.5 degree tilt of the earth gives us, uh, with extraordinary accuracy, the weather patterns and seasons which uniquely support life and enable us to grow crops. And the exact 24-hour spin of the earth gives us balanced temperatures between day and night, making the earth habitable. Any minor variation in any of these and the planet would be entirely uninhabitable. Then there's the air. The air contains a finely, finely tuned combination of chemicals which support plant and animal life. Then there's the expansion rate of the universe. Again, it is so finely tuned that if it were a fraction faster or slower, the universe would never have begun to exist and could not continue to exist. I could go on and on and on. But in other words, God's invisible qualities, his divine power and eternal nature have been clearly seen from what has been made. Paul is starkly saying to us, there is no excuse for pretending God isn't there. However much we want to get rid of him and run this show ourselves. But again, you might respond, well, hang on, that's not fair. I've looked at the scientific evidence and I'm just not convinced. But Paul is saying there's something else going on here. We are not neutral creatures neutrally assessing the evidence dispassionately. No, since the sin of our first parents, we all now have an innate bias to push away the inconvenient truth of God's reality. And so read on verse 21. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Think about it for a moment. God is the creator. He is the source of everything good. He didn't have to make you or I. He didn't have to give us our flesh and bones and skin and emotions and family and gifts and sports and music and love and summer sunshine and, and minds to make technology. He didn't have to do any of it for us, but he graciously did. What kind of a response do you think we ought to have? Shouldn't we be people who say, thank you, who, who praise him? And who want more than anything to, to know the God who gave us all of this, to, to listen to him and learn from him. But that isn't what we choose. We still want to rid ourselves of God or at least squash down the truth that he's there. That's what we do. But, but when you think about it, isn't that just about the craziest, stupidest thing you've ever heard? Well, that's verse 21. Our thinking becomes futile. Our foolish hearts are darkened. Although we claim to be wise, we became fools, says Paul. 
I wonder if you know how many atheists there are globally. If you were to guess the percentage of the world's population who who call themselves atheists, I wonder what you would guess. Well, a recent study put that number at somewhere between 2 and 7%, which is pretty tiny, isn't it? That wouldn't be a surprise to the book of Romans. You see, not only does Paul say that, that we squash the truth that God is there and that we push him away, that's true, but it also remains true that because God made us to worship him, we are hardwired to worship, to worship something at least. But, read verse 23, we exchange the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man, and so on. And verse 25, We exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the creator. The truth is, it's too inconvenient for us to worship God because we don't really want him to be in charge. But we are hardwired to worship something and so we set up other gods, gods of our own, things that we love and trust and adore. But the painful irony is, because there's only one God, because he's the maker of everything, anything else that we choose to worship is inferior. More than that, it can never satisfy us. Perhaps the most frightening sentence here is in verse 24, that the result of all of this is that God gives us over. To the sinful desires of our hearts. In the end, when we say we don't want God, well, He gives us what we ask for. And He gives us over in active judgment to the consequences of our own sin. Well, we've reached point three. By way of summary, hopefully, you can start to see our great problem emerging. What happens when we turn our backs on God in this way, as we all have? Or when we turn away from God, who is the source of all wisdom, don't be surprised when our thinking becomes foolish and futile. That's verse 21. And when we turn away from God, who is the source of all goodness and light, don't be surprised if life seems pretty dark and hopeless. And when we turn away from worshipping the immortal God, don't be surprised that we're left worshipping and chasing after small, rubbish, breakable, perishable, mortal things that only ever disappoint us and leave us unsatisfied. That's verse 23. And don't be surprised when we turn away from God, who is the source of all truth. Don't be surprised if we end up living a lie. That's verse 25. And when we turn away from God, don't be surprised if he gives us what we want, a life apart from him. That's verse 24. And when we turn away from God, don't be surprised if we ourselves, our desires, our inclinations, our very selves become damaged and distorted. That, I think, is what lies behind verse 26. 
God gives us what we want, a life without him. And how do we end up? Verse 31, senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. In other words, we end up with a world like this. Now at this point, maybe I as the preacher should help our understanding by thinking of an, of an illustration or maybe an example to demonstrate this. But I don't need to do that because Paul gives his own example to drive the point home. Um, now I need to give consideration to the younger members of our audience here, not to mention those who are directly affected by this issue, so I tread carefully. But the example Paul gives is homosexual sex. That's verses 24 to 26. Paul says God gives us over to shameful lust. Let me be clear about what is and what isn't being said here. So is Paul giving him an example by picking the worst sin that he can think of? No. And those listening today who experience same-sex attraction shouldn't think that their particular sins or temptations are any worse than anybody else's. In fact, the rest of us need to take note and pay attention to the fact that, that some of the other sins that Paul lists here include disobeying your parents and gossip. So nobody is off the hook here, me included. But he's giving an illustration of how our sinfulness works. We've already seen that, that when we turn away from God, who is the source of all goodness, things become distorted and broken. We've already seen that when we choose to walk away from God and pretend he isn't there so that we can live our own way, God gives us what we ask for. He gives us over. That is his active judgment. It's about what God has created being taken but then damaged, twisted, and broken. After all, sex and family relationships are good, and God made them both. He gave sex for men and women who are married. But when we push God out, and when therefore God obliges and steps back and leaves us to the consequences of our actions, it's not surprising that many things in life, including our sexuality, goes wrong. Remember, too, that Paul is talking generally. He isn't saying that people who are gay must have pushed God away more than anyone else. That isn't it at all. But when our society, when our culture, when our entire race rejects God, each of us will feel the consequences, albeit in varying ways. For some young men, this will mean they're tempted to sleep with their girlfriend before they are married. Others will have a particular problem, as Paul says, with gossip and slander. And others may find themselves attracted to members of the same sex. But let me say very clearly, we are all in the same boat here. Nobody is off the hook. And crucially, none of us are beyond the grace of God. 
you can see what our problem is. It is very serious. What makes it even more serious is that this is not just a problem for a few people. We're not just being a bit naughty or going a little wrong here or there. Remember where Paul's argument is leading us. Look on now to chapter 3 verse 10. Paul is leading to this point. There is no one righteous, not even one. In other words, this problem is a problem for everybody. All of the leaders in our church share this problem. I suffer from this same sin problem and each one of you shares it too. We all have the same diagnosis. Can I say, if that leaves you feeling as if it's a hopeless situation, then good. That's how we ought to feel when we read this. And if you feel helpless, like there's a great problem here and you cannot see what on earth you can do to solve it, then good. Because you're absolutely right. There is nothing you can do. And if you know and feel, as I do, only too well, that that in and of yourself, you're not right with God. That on your own, you're not righteous. If that's how you feel, and remember, that's all of us. If you know only too well that you are powerless to conjure up a righteousness of your own, then good. You're getting it. That is the truth of our situation. But if you feel that, can I also say to you, take heart. Take heart by looking at these words from chapter 3. We have no righteousness of our own, but now a righteousness from God has been made known. It's not my job today to give you every detail of that. It comes through faith, through trust in Jesus Christ and all that he has done for you. But today, this passage should leave you hanging. It should leave you longing to know Jesus and the rescue that he can bring. And it should leave you knowing you need him. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks that you're a God who speaks plainly and with clarity to us. Lord, we know that you give us these warnings because you're kind and loving. Father, we pray that you would help each of us to see how much we need to know the Lord Jesus and the righteousness he can bring to us through the gospel. Help us to take hold of that and to trust in it and to receive it as a gift from you. In Jesus' name, amen.